The information discussed in this episode is intended as general information only. It is not intended for one-on-one medical advice, and you should always consult your healthcare practitioner before making any changes. And if you like the content discussed in this episode, please go leave a review so that others can benefit from it as well. I am a woman on a mission that is dedicated to teaching you just how powerful your body was built to be. I like to do that by bringing you the latest science, the greatest thought leaders, and applicable steps that help you tap into your own internal healing power. The purpose of this podcast is to give you the power back and help you believe in yourself again. My name is Dr. Mindy Pels, and I want to thank you for spending part of your day with me. Okay, Resetters, Jessica and I are back with, I feel like I say this every time, but I'm definitely going to need to emphasize how mind-blowing, mind-blowing my next guest is. Didn't you think so, Jess? Yes. I would, I feel like we always say this is like my favorite podcast. I know. Every time we have a new one, but this might be my new favorite. Yeah, I agree. He is so kind and so smart. So kind. Oh, yeah. So smart. All day talk. Yeah. So don't get lost in some of his like chemistry because at the end, he has some incredible like mission statements. And really, I mean, he's such a deep thinker. And I think that's what we like to bring on to this podcast are people who are thinking health through or thinking life through at such a deep level. And I would even say this is consider this podcast. It is going to be a paradigm shift. Like, Beliefs that you have before you listen to this are going to be tested, mm-hmm. wouldn't you say? Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I yeah. Love that. So if all of a sudden he says something and you're like, what? That's ridiculous. And you want to shut the podcast off. I encourage you to listen all the way through. And he also has his new book, The Carnivore Code. It has over 600 peer-reviewed studies that he cites in there. So when he talks, he talks from science. Yeah. And, and just in case you guys don't know who, who he is, well, Mindy's, Dr. Mindy's about to tell you, but he's a medical doctor. Yeah. That's from the perspective of, you know, somebody that's gone through medical school, which, which I really enjoyed. Yeah. And he was also, if I've listened to some other podcasts with him where he really became disillusioned at his profession and how they were just not teaching nutrition, let alone proper nutrition to their patients. So, so yeah, let me tell you a little background on him. So this is Dr. Paul Saladino, and he is the leading authority on science and the application of the carnivore diet. And I think you guys will see that for sure. He has used the diet to reverse autoimmune issues, chronic inflammation, and mental health issues in hundreds of patients, many of whom have been told their conditions were untreatable. I will also attest to that. We've seen this in our Resetter Collaborative. People are, their health dramatically shifting when they take on a carnivore diet. He also hosts a popular fundamental health podcast and his new best-selling book, The Carnivore Code, you can get on Amazon right now. I highly recommend it. And Dr. Saladino is a board certified, he's board certified as a physician nutrition specialist and in psychiatry and completed a residency at the University of Washington. He is a new member of the Austin, Texas community. 
And he can be found, this is funny, he can be frequently found exploring wild places when he's not writing, researching, or working with clients. I want to go on vacation with he and Maria. Maria? Yeah, I I know. (laughs) I'm surprised he hasn't gone out to her house bow hunting yet. I know. We have to find a way to get those two together, and then I want to be a part of it. Yeah, agreed. <laughs> so, so, so this, I wanted to bring him on because we did roll out carnivore fasting to our resetter community. And I was really reluctant to roll out carnivore. I didn't really see the depth of the, of this diet as being as healing as it, as it, it has the potential to be. And when we rolled it out, for those of you that don't know our resetter tribe, we have over 200,000 people that all fast together across all of our platforms. And the results were unreal. Like the amount of weight loss that happened, the joint movement, pain that went away, skin conditions that improved. And this was just with five days of carnivore fasting. Yeah, we had a lot a lot of awesome feedback from it. Amazing feedback. So then I was after I saw it in action with so many people, I wanted to bring him on to really pick his brain. So enjoy as always we are bringing you mind-bending information that's backed by science and if you love this, share it out to the world cuz this is definitely a life-changing changing episode. Enjoy. Hey, resetters. As we step into the new year, I am so thrilled to invite you on an extremely transformative journey with me in my Reset Academy. So check this out. If you're ready to kickstart your fasting and health journey, which I know so many of you have reached out to us and asked how you customize a fasting lifestyle for you, my Reset Academy is the absolute best place to be. So here's what you get in the academy, and I like to think of it in terms of a complete picture. So imagine being surrounded by people who understand your journey, who are passionate for fasting, who want to lift you up and will support you every step of the way. My academy is not just me, my team, but it is an incredible group of people that are all dedicated to building fasting lifestyles and supporting each other in it. This is why I created the Reset Academy. So when you join, you gain access to all the exclusive calls where my team and I share the latest insights, we answer your burning questions, and we guide you towards your health goals. That's not it. We didn't stop there. By becoming a member, you're not just investing in a membership, but you're investing in yourself. I am such a fan of setting you up to win this year. And my academy is the best place I know to do that. I want to keep you focused. I want you to customize this for you. And I want you to succeed at your health goals this year. End of story. So if you're ready to unlock your fullest potential and embrace a fasting lifestyle, join me. If it feels good, join me. And let's make this year an incredible year for us all. So all you got to do is go visit drmindypels.com slash reset academy to become a member. I can't wait to welcome you. I can't wait to see you on the Zoom calls. I can't wait to be in community with you. And most importantly, let's get your health goals handled and let's do this together. It's so much better together. Together. So that's drmindypels.com slash reset academy. Excited to see you there. I have brought you, I'm so excited too. Let me just tell you, 
Dr. Saldino. Like, I'm so excited to pick your brain. But welcome, the carnivore expert. I'm going to call you the carnivore expert of the world because nobody <laughs> has been able to bring the science to the carnivore diet like you have. So I want to start off by just saying welcome. I'm so happy you're joining us. And let's dive in to the carnivore diet. So let's yeah, start let's off. do it. Yeah, let's start off with this. And for the those of you that don't know Dr. Paul, and is it Saladino? Is that how we say it? Ironically, there is salad in my last name. We can talk about it. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. So he wrote the book, The Carnivore Code, if you guys aren't familiar. And I really brought you on because I want to understand this from a scientific level. So I think it's really important to say that right up front because a lot of people just feel like the carnivore is unscientific. But what I want to tell you is that we introduced carnivore to our resetters last month and the results people got was ridiculous. Like people finally losing weight, people aches and pains going away. Like it was insane the results we got. And these are people that have been doing keto, they've been doing fasting, they've been doing. So explain to me, let's just start off with why the heck are people getting so much success with this diet? You hit the nail on the head right off the bat. I think the two biggest improvements we see with the transition to what I would call an animal-based diet, and we can break down my framework for that, are our weight loss after plateaus and improvement in autoimmune conditions. And a lot of joint pain and things like that are, are autoimmune in nature. I had my own autoimmune issues, eczema and asthma, which is originally how I came to this. But in terms of, let's just deliver the goods right up front to your, to your dedicated listeners. So the weight loss, in my opinion, is clearly happening because by reducing plant foods and by reducing vegetable oils and by reducing nuts and seeds, we are reducing linoleic acid in our diet. This gets technical very quickly, but linoleic acid is an 18-carbon omega-6 fatty acid that really only is in a few foods in nature. It's just in like nuts and seeds. But today in 2020, we get it pervasively in processed food, in corn, canola, safflower, peanut, soybean oils. So if you eliminate linoleic acid from your diet, if you just religiously get that out of there, you'll get a very small amount in the fat from like grass-fed cattle. It's like 1.8% linoleic acid. But if you focus on well-raised red meat and organs, which we're going to talk about, and you get rid of things like nuts and seeds and vegetable oils, which happens automatically when you do a carnivore diet, people lose weight. And it's incredible. It's such a cool thing. There is this sort of evolutionary signal, I believe, that tells our body when we are forced to eat lots of linoleic acid, it's winter. Winter is coming. Hold on to weights. Keep your weight on. And, and as you'll know, and as your listeners may know, humans can't make polyunsaturated fat. We can only make saturated fat into monounsaturated fat via de novo lipogenesis. So any of the saturated fat in our body, we can make that and we can make some mono, but the polyunsaturated fat in our body is stored. So if we eat a lot of this polyunsaturated fat, it gets stored. And I've heard so many times these weight loss stories of people who cut down the linoleic acid in their diet. And it takes a few weeks probably to get it out of the fat cells because it makes those fat cells expandable. It makes the, the kind of doors stay open and they can get bigger. But once it's out of there, they really start to lose weight quickly, especially when they focus on animal fats, which are the fats that have been demonized for the last 70 years, but are rich in a, a saturated fat called stearic acid. And stearic acid is an 18-carbon saturated fat that appears to do the reverse. It appears to tell our bodies that we can get thin. So if you increase saturated fat by eating well-raised animal meats, 
predominantly grass-fed, grass-finished red meat from cows and bison, you increase stearic acid and you decrease linoleic acid, you start to see really profound metabolic changes. So that's the first piece. And the second piece is that there are a lot of other antigens and plants that seem to trigger people immunologically. Now, I want to be clear. So there, crazy. There are so certainly, crazy. yeah. But it makes sense evolutionarily when you think about it. And we can get down into the details there. It's not to say that it's only... And only plant foods that do this because milk and eggs can be big triggers for people too. But generally, well-raised meat and organs from, from animals, which would have made up the majority of our diet throughout the last 3.5 years of hominid evolution, these don't really trigger us immunologically most of the time. It's things like dairy, which we would never have gotten much of, or eggs, which are seasonal and rare in the animal kingdom. And you can still eat those if you tolerate them, but a lot of people might want to eliminate if they have autoimmune conditions. But it's, it's the elimination mostly of the plant foods. And plants are kind of stuck in the ground, right? They're rooted in the ground. They have all these defense chemicals. We're getting into much more detail here. But these tend to trigger immune reactions. And I think they're behind a lot of autoimmunity. We've been told they're the bee's knees. We've been told they're amazingly good for us. But I, I like to kind of offer the counter position and say, hey, I don't think you need them. And I think they're causing us a lot of problems. Yeah. And so my first thought is, well, can't you decrease linoleic acid on a traditional healthy, not a dirty keto, but like a healthy keto diet? Is it because a lot of people lose weight just going on keto with keto and fasting? Is it that we're not taking it that extra step? So you're, you're still getting a little bit in the plants? Well, I mean, if you're not eating, the problem that I see with keto for a lot of people, and keto is great. I definitely think that in the setting of metabolic dysfunction, aka insulin resistance, aka prediabetes, decreasing the carbohydrates is very helpful metabolically because there's carbohydrate intolerance. But I'll be be very clear to say that carbohydrates don't cause, cause diabetes. It's something else. It's really the linoleic acid, in my opinion, that's breaking us at a metabolic level. But a lot of people on ketogenic diets, they eat a lot of nuts and nut butters. And mm. this is the problem. But theoretically, you're absolutely right. If you ate a ketogenic diet that was low in linoleic acid, that was low in nuts and nut butters, and the other flip side is that you have to make sure you get enough of that stearic acid. So if you ate a ketogenic diet that was high in animal fat from ruminants, specifically, you and I were talking before the podcast about this high stearic acid suet that we're making at Hardened Soil, this, this company that I've got that makes these desiccated organs. If you're getting the stearic acid, that combined with linoleic acid avoidance, I think is a real good formula for just giving your body this evolutionary signal that, hey, everything's good. You have abundance. It's okay to be lean. Winter is not coming. It's, it's this sort of metabolic summer in which you can stay lean. So yeah. that's the key. And I think that you can do that on a ketogenic diet. It's just more difficult. You have to be more you have to be more intentional about it. A lot of people fall into traps because they just do nut butters all day long. Yeah, that's such a good that's such a good point. So I had a really interesting experience interviewing Maria Emmerich. Have you have you spoken with Maria? Yeah, Emmerich? yeah, we're great friends. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. For starters, she's just a badass woman. Like yeah, she's, a, human. she's like a bow hunter yeah, and yeah. all this. Yeah. But she, there was something that she said to me that just flipped my brain into a whole nother place, and that's that she said that collagen, beef collagen is the best prebiotic for your gut bacteria that you can find. And I honestly, when I interviewed her, I was like, I don't believe that. She doesn't know what she's talking about because the microbiome I have studied to great lengths. 
Now, I've never studied it as deeply as you have from a carnivore perspective, but I went and I started to do some research and I found that, and, and again, I know you know this, but that we've got this ratio, firmicutes to bacteroides ratio, that gets out of balance with the standard American diet. And so when you feed bacteroides, you can start to flip that ratio and now people start to lose weight. Is that, and, and the place you feed your, what your bacteroides want is beef collagen. That is what it is asking for you to feed it. And I mean, I think I'd agree with Maria. I can share a study. I mean, this has been done in cheetahs and there's good evidence in humans that the same thing happens, that this is what we would call animal fiber, quote unquote. Everyone thinks we need plant fiber to make short chain fatty acids and butyrate, but humans can ferment proteins, specifically collagen proteins into isobutyrate, butyrate, acetate, and even butyrate. So we can make short chain fatty acids out of collagen. And she's totally right. Animal connected tissue is a prebiotic in humans, and it's totally true. And I think that it's tricky in terms, you know, the the research with the microbiome is observational. It just has to be based on, mm. you know, because you can look at the Hadza. So there's an interesting study by Justin Sonnenberg at, at Stanford. And they actually went to Tanzania and studied the Hadza over the course of multiple years. And they took their stool. They were just following them around, collecting the Hadza poop in the wet season and the dry season. And I think that the Hadza don't have inflammatory bowel disease any time of the year. They just, but what they found was that in the dry season, they eat a predominantly animal-based diet and their, their ratios, the firmicutes and the bacteroidetes shift and the microbiome begins to resemble a quote, Western microbiome. And then mm. in the wet season, they're eating more plant foods, more berries, things like that. And they get a different microbiome that's shifting. So I think we have to be very careful with these characterizations of the microbiome because like I said, the, the problem I have with Justin Sonnenberg's conclusions are that the Hadza are healthy in the dry season or the wet season. Mm. And so what we know is that if you remove fiber from the human diet and you only give animal fiber, you may get some shifts in the microbiome that look a certain way. But if the individual is healthy, we have to kind of challenge the mainstream paradigm of what a healthy gut is. And furthermore, the Hadza don't even have bifidobacteria. So we can't do it on like an individual species basis. And even at the phyla basis, we have to be a little careful if we're saying more of this one, less of this one. I think what we're going to find is that the microbiome is in an ecosystem and there are different niches and multiple species can occupy the same niche. So if we don't have lactobacillus or bifidobacteria, another bacteria can kind of sneak into that thing and, and occupy that niche. And it's not about specific bacteria or even phyla necessarily. It's about this kind of complex web with over thousands of species of bacteria. So it's, it's interesting. But I, I, your point is well taken. What we see clinically is that people do way better you know, from a GI perspective with the shift. And Sonnenberg's point is, hey, when the Hadza don't eat plants, their gut microbiome resembles a Western microbiome. And it's like, well, yeah, but is that a bad thing? If the Hadza are super healthy, there's something else going on there. Right, right. So do you, and I, I'm actually later on want to tell you that I dissect my stool test that I did. I did a stool test before a week of carnivore only, and then I did a post test. Cool. My, my post test was really interesting. So I will dive into that in a moment because it almost looked like there was some detoxification that was going on. Like the carnivore had created a new environment in my gut and stuff was coming out that had might've been there in, in, in the gut for a while. Have you, have you... It, yeah, it certainly creates a new environment. We know that. I mean, there was actually, 
There's a seven-day trial that was actually done at Harvard where they compared a plant-based diet to a carnivore diet, and they didn't do a great carnivore diet. It was probably things like sausages and hot dogs and salami. It wasn't, they were trying to make the carnivore diet look bad because this is Harvard we're talking about, and there's some bias toward the plant-based world there from the T.H. Chan School of Public Health and Walter Willett and whatnot. But what they found was alpha diversity didn't even change. So the alpha diversity didn't drop on an animal-based diet, and they saw shifts. They saw shifts to more animal, to more bile acid tolerant organisms, and but there was no real negative shift in the alpha diversity. Interestingly, I've found the same thing. I just got my results back from longevity a couple of weeks ago, and my alpha diversity is very high. It's 94, which means I'm more diverse than 94% of the population. And clinically, I don't really have any gut symptoms. But if you look at my gut, there are some species that are bile tolerant that traditional gastroenterologists might look at from a canonical perspective and say, that's a bad bug. And we're like, well, I'm a totally healthy individual. I don't have inflammatory bowel disease. We have to reevaluate this. But yeah, it's definitely going to change the environment. I think when we're really getting down to the nitty gritty of the microbiome, it's just important that we think, what's the clinical picture? I'm sure you know this. You know, you treat the patient, not the labs. And if the mm-hmm. patient's getting better, it's like, hmm. This is an interesting change in the way the microbiome looks and people get all up in arms without the plant fiber because you don't have bifido or lacto, but it's like, well, you're super healthy and neither you're doing great. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's fascinating, but I'd love to hear about yours too. Yeah, we'll di- we'll dive into it in a second. Weight loss. So if you and I are standing in in the line at the grocery store together and I'm like, I've tried everything, I can't lose weight, what would be your first recommendation to me? Cut out the vegetable oils religiously. Religiously. Okay. And everything that has them, and then get the linalool. I mean, it depends how much time. It depends how far back in the grocery store line we are, yeah. right? Like, and, and how many, okay. and how technical this is, you know? Because my my specific recommendation would be to maximize the stearic acid to linoleic acid ratio in your diet. You want more stearic acid, less linoleic acid, and linoleic acid is going to be in. It's going to be in corn, canola, soybean, safflower, all the vegetable oils. A lot of olive oil and avocado oil is cut with vegetable oil. And linoleic acid is also probably going to be at a level that is going to promote obesity in traditionally fed chicken and pork. So this is something Mm. else I've been talking about recently. It's pretty it's pretty spicy within the carnivore community, but I feel very strongly about it. And I've seen many people who are stalled losing weight on keto and carnivore do better when they cut out chicken and pork for this reason. Mm. When you feed chicken and pork, corn and soy, their fat becomes enriched in linoleic acid five to six times what it normally is. So we can get into the actual amounts of linoleic acid in these fats, but there is like vegetable oil hidden in bacon fat these days because the pigs are fed the wrong type of thing. And if you feed the pigs a wild diet, then they're going to have much less of the vegetable oil hidden in their fat. So you want to eliminate vegetable oil in all of the sources and all the hidden spots and then maximize the stearic acid, which is from the fat of well-raised ruminants, cows, bison, sheep, that kind of thing. Just the same kind of fat that's been villainized, but is super critical for our metabolism. Yeah, it's so it, the mind, it's so mind bending. I mean, I've come to the place years ago where I understood that it wasn't red meat that was giving us heart disease. But you know, you take it to a whole nother level, which is is incredible. Would you say now some of our resetters when we did this, we I called it carnivore fasting, where I had them fast 17 hours in a day to stimulate autophagy. Love it. 
And then I had him do the carnivore diet. And my thought was one of the things we've seen for muscle building is you go back and forth from autophagy to mTOR. And when you're going in and out of that, then you can build muscle like a, like a crazy person. So, but some people actually gained weight. I would say that was rare, but we did five days carnivore fasting together. The majority of the people were like, this is amazing. My weight loss has gone to a whole new level. And some people said, this isn't fair. I actually gained weight. Have you ever seen that? Only in people who include dairy or bacon. Yeah, I was just thinking when you were talking about chicken and pork, I'm like, I bet they have to get that out. They have to get that out. But I totally agree with your with your your model there. And that's how I eat. So I'll eat, I usually do 16-8 or, you know, 18-6 type of fasting every day. And I'll do breakfast and an early lunch or an early dinner. So I this podcast is starting at four o'clock my time central and I've already eaten dinner for the day. I won't eat again until nine or 10 tomorrow morning. So I usually try to do that. So I'll eat two meals a day. And it's so interesting because when I started talking about the carnivore stuff, I'm good friends with Joe Mercola, but he reached out and we weren't really that connected then. He said, what about all this mTOR? You're going to overstimulate mTOR with all this protein. Yeah. I said, Joe, you're going to stimulate it and then you're going to turn it off and you're going to stimulate it and you're going to turn it off. So I completely agree with your concept that you yeah. want to stimulate mTOR. Humans need muscles. We want yeah. to grow. And then like our ancestors would have had, you're going to have some period every day, every other day, or for a couple of days where you're not eating. And then you're going to get some autophagy. You're going to get amp kinase. You're going to get mTOR turned off. So it has to be a balance. And what, what I think is you know, lost in so many of these discussions is the nuance around people are just saying, I mean, there's like this whole bodybuilder crowd that like just wants to turn mTOR on as much as possible. Well, how can I gain the most muscle on a carnivore diet? And then there's this whole quote, scientific crowd who will say like, you're going to overstimulate mTOR. You should never stimulate mTOR. And everybody wants to take metformin and rapamycin. I'm just going, what are you guys doing? Like, this is the worst idea ever. Like, why are you trying to do that? If you like like being fertile, if you like having a libido, if you like having muscles and lifting things that are heavy and being able to pick your kids up, you want mTOR. mTOR doesn't equal cancer. It's not that simple. Right. Yeah. And so we had this in our, in our fasting group that so many people were fasting, they started to notice that they were losing muscle. And when I dove into the research, I was like, it, there's no really logical reason. Maybe it's like it, you appear to lose muscle, but then when you start to eat again, you're going to find the muscle come back. Well, I stumbled across some research that showed that one of the greatest ways to stimulate mTOR and to really work on building muscle is to have 20 grams of protein every two hours. And up to, a, I think they said it was about 120, 140 grams per day. Have you heard that before? Yeah, I mean, so there's this, there's this switch, right? So the mTOR is triggered by leucine or carbohydrates or resistance exercise. And the switch, I think, is around 3.6 grams of leucine. So you could also just take a big dose of branched-chain amino acids and trigger mTOR. Yeah. This, pro- this protocol has been used by people who are doing intermittent fasting or extended fasting as well. But you, you can trick your body into doing that in 2020 because we have ability to make specifically this leucine molecule. But to get 3.6 grams of leucine, you need about three ounces of meat, which is about 28 grams of protein of meat. So depending what the composition of that protein is, how much leucine is in that protein, yeah, 20 to 28 grams, 20 to 30 grams of protein usually has enough leucine to trigger muscle protein synthesis. You don't need more than that. So you could do it that way. You could eat 
you know, three ounces of meat a few times a day, that would be essentially a protein sparing modified fast. Or you could just take a branch chain amino acid supplement if you just wanted to trigger mTOR, but you didn't want to eat anything. And again, I think that there's, there's benefits to both, right? Like you can, certainly you can over fast. People will know that, you know, if you over fast, you're going to affect your hormones. But if you want to use it clinically as like a sharp tool, that would be the way that I would make it as precise as possible in terms of muscle maintenance. Would I be, if I'm doing a branch chain amino acids or like one of your organ supplements during a fast, is that going to pull me out of autophagy? Will that put I mean, me in? Not really. You got to think about it in terms of calories. It's, it's still going to be such a profound calorie deficit that you're going to get the molecular mechanisms. You know, at a cellular level, you're going to have the ATP is going to be way, way lower than the ADP and the AMP. And that's going to turn on AMP kinase and that's going to really imbalance mTOR. So people always get worried about fasting and breaking a fast as like a light switch. And it's more like a dimmer. It's mm. not It's not on off. It's just... Mm, it's that's a, a it's great a, way to look at it. It's a dimmer switch. And so you think like, if you go into a room and you just turn the dimmer switch on a little bit, you're probably still going to stub your toe on something if your kid left a tie on, toy on the floor. You know, you have to turn the dimmer switch on a lot if you're going to, you know, to come out of fasting, you're going to have to really give your body enough substrate to make a lot of ATP to swing the cellular mechanism back over away from AMP kinase. Because AMP kinase is sensing AMP, adenosine monophosphate, which is a cellular signal for low energy. So if you're just giving yourself 300 or 400 calories a day, you're essentially still in such a caloric deficit, you're going to get a lot of benefits. You're going to get all that AMP kinase stimulated stuff all those genes are going to be turned on. You're going to be in ketosis for sure. You're going to get PGC1 alpha and mitochondrial biogenesis. So think of it more of a dimmer switch. I, like I, don't, I, don't, I never liked like, I'm going to break my fast. And it's like, yeah, well, I don't really, you're not really going to break your fast. It's, it's yeah. still, still super beneficial. Yeah. That's a, I, like, I always use the switch because one of the things that I love to study is like what happens as you fast longer, like what happens at 15, what happens at 17. And there's great research out that out there. But I, lo- I always say it's a switch you're turning on. But I like the dimmer because that is more accurate. And it gives people some grace and not to be so tight with how they're fasting. It like allows them to be a little more flexible with their fasting. Yeah, I think there's a lot of benefits to protein sparing modified fast, you know, four to 500 calories a day of protein or organs. I mean, I think you could do an amazing fast with, you know, some liver and, you know, and some meat and, and, you know, a little bit of fat, 400 calories a day, you're going to get tons of benefits. You're going to be massively caloric deficit and you're definitely going to be in ketosis. and You're going to be turning on all those mechanisms. Yeah, and it's going to be that. probably way more sustainable for people. Or, you know, the desiccated organ supplements too would be a great option. Yeah, no, I'm super ex- I just ordered some of yours because I'm like, I don't know. I'm like, I'm all about the name of health, but I'm not sure I can get liver in my mouth. So <laughs> I'm really excited. So yeah, um, it's cool. There's so many unique nutrients in the organs, you know? And so we have a beef organ supplement, which is kidney, heart, liver, spleen, and pancreas. And most people will never see a spleen in their life and they'll be happy about that. Yeah. But there's unique nutrients in spleen and, and pancreas. If you've ever seen a pancreas, it looks like an alien, but it's nutritious and it had digestive organs, digestive enzymes and all kinds of good stuff and peptides and kidneys and liver. They're all super valuable. But I realized, like I thought about my sister and her kids, like, how are we going to get my niece and nephew to eat pancreas? Like, no, let's just, let's take these organs from grass fed, grass finished cows in New Zealand. Let's freeze dry them and put them into capsules. And it's so much easier for people to take. So that's what we're doing at Heart and Soil. 
It's really yeah, cool thank, stuff. Thank you for doing that. I'm so <laughs> grateful for that. So I want to dive into hormones because again, we, you know, I, there was an interesting discussion uh, that I had with several of my colleagues when they heard I was doing carnivore for a week and they knew as a woman going through menopause, they were like, a couple of them were like, just be careful of your hormones, watch out. It may not be good for your hormones. So like, should a woman do carnivore different? How is this affect our hormones? And then I read something in the book last night that I literally had to read twice. And I still am having trouble believing that plants are endocrine disruptors. Oh, yes, they are. Oh, my <laughs> goodness, they are. They are so huge. Let's start there. Explain that to me. How can a plant be an endocrine disruptor? Did you see in the book, there's a diagram of like genistein and quercetin compared to estrogen? Yes. So that's exactly how a plant can be an endocrine disruptor. So here's what's interesting. I came across this sort of idiosyncrasy as I was writing the book and I had to check with some of my friends because I'd never heard anybody say it. There are, do you know how many polyphenolic molecules are produced by the human body? Well, I know because I've listened to you. <laughs> so there's none. <laughs> none. There, are, there are no polyphenolic molecules produced by the body. And that may, not, that may not mean a whole lot to people, so I'll clarify it. A phenol is a, is a six-membered carbon ring with a sort of a, a, a resonance structure in terms of double bonds. It's like the prototypic model is like a benzene ring. It's six carbons with like these resonance electrons. And if you put multiple of those, you have polyphenols. If you have multiple sort of have multiple rings with resonance structures, you have polyphenols. Well, Polyphenols are, are molecules that are unique to plants, but polyphenols can often look like our hormones because our hormones are also carbon backbones that are made from cholesterol, testosterone, estrogen, uh, other androgens, aldosterone. These are all steroid hormones, but we don't make polyphenols. We just have single benzene rings or single sort of aromatic resonance structure rings in our body. But what happens is these plant molecules mimic ours but they don't really work in the same way. So absolutely, there's really good evidence that a lot of molecules in plants that are polyphenolic look a lot like 17-beta-estradiol. And that is a bad thing, generally speaking, for both men and women. And a, a lot of these are the molecules that we, that, we were, that we really venerate. And that's one of the things that I like to gently or not so gently challenge in the book. These are molecules like resveratrol, genistein, which is a soy isoflavone, quercetin. These molecules look just like estrogen. And in cell culture, they're very clearly activating the 17-beta estradiol receptor. So this is like, yeah, there's a lot of this xenoestrogenicity happening from plants. And it just, you know, there's this thesis that I elaborate in the book that, hey, plants and animals are from different kingdoms. We have different operating systems. The way that plants use their molecules is different than the way that we use our molecules. And I liken it to like a Tesla versus a Porsche. And you can decide whichever one of those you like more. It can be humans or plants or whatever. But the Tesla parts don't work really well in a Porsche and vice versa. And we see this over and over in our biology, whether it's with vitamins that don't really look the same between plants and animals, like beta carotene versus retinoic acid, or whether it's with these xenoestrogenic plant molecules that are kind of mimicking our molecules, but don't work in the same way, or it, the list goes on and on. So it's really fascinating to think about this. So plants can definitely be endocrine disruptors. And this is not, Crazy. it's really not even questionable. It's, it's pretty 
widely known that soy has a lot of endocrine disrupting properties. Now, some people will say, oh, it's like a SARM or a SERM. It's like a selective estrogen receptor modulator. It's like, I don't buy it. I don't think it's doing anything good for us. These are, these are molecules that are affecting the receptor in a, in a negative way. And they're, they're really just mixing the operating systems and it's not very good. So that's the first part of plants disrupting our hormones. And for women, it can cause problems. And certainly for men, it can cause lower testosterone or things like this. And for women, that balance between estrogen and testosterone is just as important because women oh, need absolutely. testosterone too. And yep. all of this is delicate. So we're putting in inputs that don't belong there in the same way. Now, I should mention this doesn't really happen with animals. We don't see xenoestrogens from animals. They have the same operating system as us. And those molecules don't really occur in animals in quite the same way as they do in plants. So it's pretty fascinating. The other nuanced discussion about carnivore and hormones is around ketosis and versus carbohydrates. And one of the things that I've tried to do with the book and with my messaging is to be less dogmatic and more open-minded. I've given people ways to do an animal-based diet, a carnivore-type diet, not even a fully plant-free diet, but an animal-based diet that emphasizes these nose-to-tail animal foods and still include carbohydrates that I think are the least toxic carbohydrates. So my goal with the book and with what I'm doing is not to convince everybody to stop eating plants. But to help them understand that number one, animal foods, animals eaten nose to tail, meat and organs, really the most nutritious foods on the planet, hands down. Can't beat them. We need them to be healthy. There are unique nutrients there and they've been incorrectly vilified for the last 70 years based on bad science. Number two, plants exist on a toxicity spectrum. And like we're saying, there are a lot of things in many plants that we think are healthy for us that are actually harming us. So I understand that the majority of people who read my book want to eat some plants. And so I said, all right, what are the least toxic plants? And we can get into that. I outline it. Yeah, I'd like to get into that because I, I appreciated that you did that in the book. It was because my plant brain was totally screaming at me. <laughs> <laughs> but I understand, I get it, you know, like I have a sister with a niece and a nephew and she feeds them avocado and she feeds them berries and she feeds yep. them squash. Those are all foods that I think are less toxic plant foods and I'll explain why. So there are versions of an animal-based diet that include carbohydrates. And I think, you know, the more I've been in the space and I've been, you know, I wrote the book, I published the book and earlier this year, I've been writing it for, you know, about a year and a half. And I've been in the carnivore space and eating a nose to tail carnivore diet myself for over two years now. So I've seen a lot of things come and go in that short time, but it's still been a deep, deep dive. And it, I have seen menstruating women have changes in their cycle. And I think, you know, I'm not convinced that for women, low carb is going to work all the time. And I think that that's reasonable. And I think that the hormones do shift when we go low carb. There are women out there who are low carb, who have maintained fertility, who have carried pregnancies and done great. But if, if women are afraid of cyclic changes with low carb, and I think that's totally reasonable, there are ways to do an animal-based diet that is a diet that emphasizes animal meat and organs and still include what I think are very low toxicity sources of carbohydrates. That, that's a way to kind of gently ease into it. I'm not about, like I said, convincing everybody to eat zero plants okay. for the rest of their life. Yeah. You know? So we can, we can kind of dance around that. And I think that'll be helpful with the hormonal issues for a lot of people. Yeah. So my experience, I'm, uh, I'm 50, I'll be 51 in October and I'm in the middle of menopause. So when you're in the middle of menopause, like every, it's like, you never know when your cycle's coming or going. You never when, know when you're going to be a nice human being and when you're going to be an angry human being. <laughs> like <laughs> You just don't know what's going to happen. So I got really into keto and fasting. I was doing that. And, and a lot of women going through in their 40s will find this is that it keeps their weight down. Their mental clarity goes up. Like They're like, Hall hallelujah, this is amazing. But it tanked my progesterone. 
So I started to do some research on, well, what are progesterone-building foods? And I found that the biggest ones were potatoes, beans, rice, squashes, and grass-fed beef. So I started in- including those around day 21 of my cycle. And, and I've done this with many women now, and it really normalizes the cycle out. So now you have me thinking to the next level. And I'm like, okay, of those foods that will improve progesterone, how can I stay in like maybe your tier one of, of, how, of your carnivore diet and have women use that the week before their cycle? So they're actually maybe stepping out of ketosis, but they're focused on building progesterone. Totally fine to do that. Totally fine to step out of ketosis from time to time, even all the time. I mean, I think that every day it's okay for people to eat carbohydrates, especially within the framework of time-restricted feeding, because most of the time in that 16-hour window or even a 14-hour window, a lot of people are going to use up all the glycogen in their liver and they're going to get back into ketosis and they're going to end up with ketones of some level in their blood. There are a lot of days now for me, we can talk about what I'm doing now where I include some honey. And, yeah, I saw and, that. Yeah. yeah. And I, you know, I check my ketones in the morning and most days I'm 0.5 millimolar or higher, even including some honey in my diet during the day. And it, it's given me a lot of flexibility in terms of metabolic, just metabolic movement and metabolic sort of changeability. And then it's been easier to maintain electrolytes. So there's lots of ways to incorporate the carbohydrates. You know, you remind me recently, so I have a really good friend who is trying an animal-based diet. And she said she has had endometriosis or at least the clinical diagnosis of endometriosis for many years. And her periods have always been super, super painful. This is just an, an N of one, her anecdote, but she's been doing it now for through two cycles. And she just got her period recently. And she, I was talking to her yesterday on the phone and she said, I woke up with my period and it came and I didn't even know. It was the first time in her recent memory that she didn't have like horrible nausea and cramping before. She just woke up and she was like, oh, I have my period. I'm menstruating. Like she didn't even know. And then it was, it was over and done. She said it was the easiest sort of menstrual cycle she's ever had. She's 36. The easiest menstrual cycle she's ever had with this sort of animal-based project. That That is freaking... That's really freaking cool. I'll also mention that just like we talked about linoleic acid earlier, I think that that's tied into the hormones too, because Mm. we know that insulin resistance and metabolic dysfunction are connected with a lot of hormonal irregularities. So when we get metabolically healthy and linoleic acid is acting at the level of the mitochondria to sort of impair their ability to properly modulate energy stores, and when we get metabolically healthy, if we do this stearic acid increase, linoleic acid decrease, I think people are also going to get better from a hormonal perspective. They're all connected. Yeah. So my one of my friends, when she heard I was going, I was doing carnivore, she's a hormone expert. And she said, well, do you mind going carnivore for 90 days and doing a pre and post Dutch test, do a hormone test? And at the time I'm like, nah, I don't know if I could do that. She's like, I think your hormones will tank at the end of 90 days. But now that I'm looking at the carnivore code, I'm like, I could probably do tier one for 90 days and do a retest and find out. And of course, I would be N of one as well, but it would be interesting to see what it does to my like testosterone level. I'd be curious what it does because the the Dutch test will break down all the different types of estrogen. So if I do it, I'll let you know. Yeah, for sure. But just so everybody knows what we're talking about, a a tier one carnivore diet is really a carnivore-ish type diet. And this is my favorite version of carnivore because it's the most inclusive and it's it's really an animal-based approach. It's not straight animal foods. It's including 
animal meat and organs as the focus, again, the liver, the heart, the pancreas, either fresh or with the desiccated organ supplements, and the least toxic plant foods. And I'll just tell people what I mean by this so that they understand the framework we're working in. When you think about a plant in the ground, it's rooted in the ground, it has a stem, it has roots, it has leaves, it has seeds, and it has fruit. And almost every part of that plant is highly protected except the fruit. So the plant seeds, which are actually seeds, grains, nuts, and legumes, they're all seeds, are plants' reproductive parts. They're the babies. They invest a lot of energy to get those things out into the world to hope that their DNA continues. So those are some of the most defended parts of plants, period, which is why beans are just full of digestive enzyme inhibitors, lectins, Mm. saponins, all the seeds are, grains are too, saponins. There are just tons of these things in these foods because plants are trying to defend those. They're putting a lot of energy into defending the seeds so that the plants can reproduce. So avoiding the seeds is critical. And a lot of people will know this. Wheat, it's a seed, it's gluten, it's mm-hmm. grain, but it's a seed. Nuts, the same kind of thing. A lot of defenses. They cause a lot of GI distress for people despite the fact that they're heralded as something healthy. I think they're mostly causing us a lot of problems. Beans, really, really harmful for humans in a lot of ways. Even though people say they're great, I'm not convinced at all. And there's been many poisonings with like undercooked kidney beans. You can get massively sick. Really? If you tried to eat, yeah. If you tried to eat a raw kidney bean, I mean, if you tried to eat enough raw kidney beans, like you would be vomiting violently on the ground. Like they are freaking toxic. All the beans are, they're horribly toxic. You don't want to eat these things raw at all. And even if you cook them, it takes a lot to detoxify them. You have to go a long way to make these foods palatable. And then you have stems and leaves. These are also parts of plants that plants are just like, get away from me, get away from me, do not eat me. They're full of toxins. They're full of defense chemicals, phytoalexins. Even a lot of the roots, they're below ground, so they're a little bit better, but a lot of them have the same kind of things in them. Oxalates, things that have caused humans problems. But the fruit are the plant's sort of effort to get the seeds somewhere. So I think fruit is the least toxic part of the plant. And fruit has gone out of style now because people are like, oh, sugar is Super out of style. Yeah, but, <laughs> but evolutionarily, just intuitively, fruit is what we would have eaten. If we saw an apple, it would have been real small. If we saw a strawberry, a blueberry, a raspberry, you're going to eat that in the wild. You're going to definitely eat that. And we can get into fructose and there's way too much fructophobia. But, you know, a lot of the things, like I said, that we think of as vegetables are actually fruit. These are avocado, olive, squash. And so the tier one carnivore diet, in my opinion, is the least toxic plant foods. It's fruit and then things like avocado, olive, squash, these kind of things, berries, and as people tolerate them. So that opens up a big realm. Yeah, it does. Cucumber, you can take out the seeds of the skin. It's mostly winter squash, but you want to avoid the seeds. So I like the winter squash more. If you do the summer squash, you got to take out the seeds because the seeds can cause people problems, lectins in the skin. But there's a lot of options there for people that make it way more diverse, a palette of foods. But it's just the same kind of thinking. It's In my opinion, it's just an, a recreation or sort of a refinement of like paleolithic diet ideas. What did our ancestors eat? What did they prioritize? What are plants trying to do? What are they trying to get us to eat? And what do they really not want us to eat? Think like a plant, you know? Plants mm. don't want you to eat their seeds or their leaves. Kale just doesn't love us back. It just doesn't. You're making it hard for the plant when you eat the kale. It's not doing you any favors. And we can talk about why we're so misled with that. But that's the idea with an animal-based diet or a tier one carnivore diet. Meat and organs and the least toxic plant foods. And I've got a next year, we've got a cookbook coming out that's going to be sort of that carnivore-ish type perspective. And you can go further. You know, I don't eat any plant foods because I feel the best that way, but I do include carbohydrates in my diet. Plant foods aren't required, but I think for a lot of people, it makes it much more doable, especially from the carbohydrate perspective. 
So I've teamed up with Tony Horton. Do you know Tony Horton? He was the creator of P90X, one of the most revolutionary at-home fitness programs. And we created together a new fitness program called Power Sync 60. And it is literally, this program's never been done. It is a revolutionary 60-day program for both men and women. So here's why I want you to join us, is that we literally created PowerSync 60 with you in mind. So it doesn't matter if you're a cycling woman, a postmenopausal woman, or a man, one of the things I brought to Tony was that when we work out, we have to think about our hormones. And he had never done that in the millions of workouts that he's created in his lifetime. We also included a free bonus meal plan and a customized tailor way you can eat right for yourself. Also, of course, we put some fasting in there and it was a beautiful meeting of the minds. So I, it, this is like a passion project that I'm so excited to share with you. And in order to get it, all you got to do is visit drmindy.org and use the code PS60PELS. So PS60 and then my last name, PELS, P-E-L-Z, to get 20% off. And you get lifetime access to the program. So that's drmindy.org and you use the code PS60PELS to join all of us. I'm actually doing this myself right now. So come join me, my community on this incredible journey. I am so proud to bring this to you. What carbohydrates do you include? So I just use honey. Honey, that's your main one. So yeah. So if you're going to do the tier one, avocado is fine. Squa- all kinds of squash is good? or is Winter it squash. Do generally winter squash. You can do summer squash, but the seeds are so much harder to get out, right? Got it. So you yeah. definitely don't want to be eating the seeds. I, I would um, avoid it. I mean, see how you do. But the whole, the whole idea is like, you know, avoid the seeds. Okay. And then I heard you say, you actually in your book talk about cucumber, but that has seeds in it. Yeah. You can take the seeds out of the cucumber and the skin. You can get okay. that little, like, you get that a little bit, you know, if you want that little bit. I mean, if you right. do fine with cucumber seeds, great. Maybe it's like less, a less problematic seed because it's in a fruit. I think I tend to feel like the seeds that are in a fruit are less toxic than the seeds that are like encapsulated. You know how the seeds in a cucumber are different than, the, than like a peach? Bit? Yes. You, bear, you sort of forget they're there. Exactly. So those are yeah. probably less problematic for people. But from a lectin's perspective, if people are struggling with autoimmune issues or joint pain, I want to give them a percent of the, the spectrum and say like, well, if you're, if you're having these autoimmune issues, you might want to try and eliminate as much as you can to a reasonable degree and then incorporate stuff back. Yeah. And olives, I heard you say olives. Yeah. I mean, olives are a fruit, right? You're not eating the pit. And I think that's going to be less toxic for a lot of people. Yeah. I've fallen in love with olives. They're like the best ever. They're pretty good, right? Yeah. Yeah, They're amazing. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. Yeah. And I don't know if you ever had an olive before it's brined. They taste horrible. Oh no. I'm not brave enough. (laughs) Yeah. yeah. So I don't know. I mean, they're pretty tannic, but I think that they're, they're a fruit technically. So they're probably like, you know, like almost like a berry. Walter Longo loves olives in his fast mimicking diet. I don't know if you've ever studied that, but it's like they give you a bag of like four olives and you're just grabbing onto that, hoping that that's going to curse your hunger. Yeah. <laughs> we can talk about Walter Longo. I've got some some thoughts on that stuff. But yeah, I, yeah, I, I do too. Terms, yeah, just in terms of a sort of a less toxic plant food, I think they're they're reasonable. Okay, so what's most toxic? So we talked about it. It's really the seeds. So the seeds, nuts, grains, okay. and legumes. Oxalate-containing plants like spinach is a real bad offender for a lot of people. You know, if you, even if you, I mean, how many people get kidney stones? It, 
they're calcium oxalate. The majority of the time, uric acid kidney stones are very rare, but calcium oxalate kidney stones are very common. And where does that oxalate come from? The majority of the time, it comes from oxalate in our diet. So it's a combination of excess oxalate and not enough calcium in our diet. And where do we get oxalate? Well, almonds, rhubarb, spinach, turmeric, a lot of high oxalate foods out there. And oxalate is a dicarboxylic acid. And it's just, it's a plant molecule that's used to store minerals. And we make a very small amount of it as, as humans. We use it as a, it's a byproduct of the breakdown of hydroxyproline and proline in the glyoxalate pathway, but we don't really need it. It's a waste product. But if you look at humans, the majority of humans have oxalate deposits in their thyroid and breast tissue. And there's compelling experiments in mouse models where they inject it and they see sort of tumor development in the mammary fat pads in mice. And so it's like, wow, this, this probably isn't a good molecule to have distributed to our body when there's no biological role for oxalate in a human breast or a thyroid. Are we getting too much of it? Probably. And there's some interesting experiments I talk about in the book that if you eat four ounces of chocolate, you can see levels of oxalate rise very steeply in the urine. I mean, chocolate has a lot of oxalate in it too. So it's just the idea, like chocolate is a plant seed, you know? So So anything that's got a seed, that seems like you can't go wrong if you stay away from the seeds. Yeah. And it just kind of makes sense. I want to make it easier, at least have some intuitive basis for it. Like that's, that helps. Def- it's defended. It's like a little baby, you know, going down the river Nile. It's totally defenseless unless the plant puts a bunch of little chemical ninjas around it and it doesn't, doesn't want you to eat it. It doesn't want you yeah. to eat the seeds or so the leaves a lot of time. Yeah. yeah. And so before we get off the topic of the toxicity of plants, which again, like blows my mind, you, I heard you say that when we chew the plant, that that also there's a toxin that comes out from the actual chewing of the plant. And that's part of its defense mechanism. There are a lot of plants that have that booby trap. And one of them is broccoli or all the brassica vegetables. So another one are things like cassava. So in South America, cassava is a very widely eaten plant, but it'll kill you if you don't process it properly. In the case of cassava, it's linamarin, is the precursor molecule, linamarase, and then it becomes hydrocyanic acid, which is just as toxic as it sounds. So even though cassava is eaten in the majority of South America, they have to crush it up and let it dry for three days so that all the hydrocyanic acid evaporates. You can't eat cassava fresh. It will absolutely kill you. And that's a root. Cassava also has isothiocyanates. And isothiocyanates are the product of glucosinolates combining with myrosinase. And there's a the prototypic is glucoraphanin and combining with myrosinase to form sulforaphane in broccoli or cabbage or cauliflower. This is the one that we're all told about because sulforaphane is this exonerated, amazing molecule, except it's not. So what happens here is the, the question that I like to ask people is, how much sulforaphane do you think is in a broccoli seed or a broccoli sprout? And the answer is none. There's no sulforaphane until it's eaten because sulforaphane at an organic chemistry level is a pro-oxidant. People always go, no, 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 it's an antioxidant. No, it's a pro-oxidant. And there's, there's some nuance here, but if you actually get to the organic chemistry of what a pro-oxidant versus an antioxidant is, we're talking about the gain and loss of electrons. Life is the movement of electrons. It's, it's really incredible and elegant what we're doing right now, speaking and having consciousness, and it's really the movement of electrons. And so the gain of electrons is reduction. The loss of electrons is oxidation. So if a molecule comes into the human body and starts pulling electrons off of our molecules, we call that molecule a pro-oxidant. And it makes free radicals at a broad level. It could also make lipid peroxides. But unpaired electrons are, are 
irascible, they're misbehaviors in the human body, and we go to great lengths to control them. We don't completely eliminate reactive oxygen species, but we use unpaired electrons and things like superoxide becoming hydrogen peroxide to signal in the human body. And if we get too much of them, they can cause a lot of problems by essentially stripping electrons away from proteins in our body and creating shifts in the conformation, things like oxidized LDL happen, free radicals happen, you get all sorts of problems in, in the human body. So we control the flow of electrons very carefully, but if we ingest a lot of molecules that are pro-oxidants, our body goes to great lengths to get rid of these. And we, we're familiar with many of these molecules. A lot of the metals, a lot of heavy metals mm-hmm. are pro-oxidants. Well, sulforaphane is the same thing in terms of how it behaves with our body. It's electron hungry. It pulls electrons And the reason a broccoli sprout or a broccoli seed can't have sulforaphane is because it doesn't want to have to manage all of that oxidative stress. It doesn't want a molecule that's so electron hungry. So it keeps it as a precursor molecule. And then when the trap is sprung with myrosinase combining with glucoraphanin, when an animal, an insect, or a human chews it, then you get then you get sulforaphane and it's like, well, it's like a bee, you know, that stings you. It's going to die while it stings you, but it's going to try and piss you off in the process. Yeah, and interesting. So sulforaphane is this toxic molecule that gets produced as a defense molecule. But we've been told it's good for us because of, I think, an oversight and we're conflating too many ideas here. So I'll just explain this so people understand. It's really illustrative. So when sulforaphane comes into our body or lead or mercury or cadmium or any other heavy metals, they all do pretty similar things. They start stripping electrons from our molecules and they make free radicals. Well, when the body senses that there's more reactive oxygen species or when there's more free radicals, this molecule called NRF2, which is associated with KEEP1 in the cytoplasm, dissociates, moves to the nucleus, you get this antioxidant response, genes turn on. Things like glutathione peroxidase, all the, you know, there's more glutathione made and glutathione is our endogenous sort of cellular policeman. It exists in an oxidized and reduced state. It's a pretty elegant molecule that's essentially made up of three amino acids. And it sort of can balance it out. It can give electrons and take electrons. And it really, the best definition I've ever been able to come up, come up with is a molecular policeman. It kind of goes around and, and calms everybody down when they're pissed off if they have unpaired electrons. And then it can get regenerated. So it can, it can donate electrons and then it can have electrons given to it. So it's an electron mover in the human body. So we'll make more glutathione. So if you look at short-term myopic studies, you'll say, hey, if you give someone glutathione or excuse me, if you give someone sulforaphane, their glutathione levels go up and that's a good thing. People say, aha, see, hormesis. But what they're missing here is a couple of pieces. The first piece is that we don't need sulforaphane to have an adequate amount of glutathione. You can make glutathione by getting oxidative stress when you're exercising or when you're in the sun or when you're in a sauna or when you're in cold water or when you're fasting. I was just going to say fasting. I always tell people that fasting increases glutathione. Yeah, it's mitohormesis because it creates... So that we have these... And these are, in my opinion, what I've called in the book, environmental hormetics. They're environment you know, causing the human body to do these cool things. And they're, they're evolutionarily things that we would have always experienced, but there's not a molecule coming into the human body to do this. It's an environmental hormetic. Now, sulforaphane is a molecular hormetic. And I, I draw a real distinction between these two things in the book and say, hey, the problem with a molecular hormetic is that it's going to have other side effects in the human body, like any molecule that we take that's that's exogenous. So when you go to the pharmacy to get a prescription, we've all done this, they give you a package insert with side effects from that molecule, whether it's metoprolol or lisinopril or a statin. Most of you people you work with are not on these drugs. I don't prescribe them anymore either. But we know from our past experience that if you give someone these drugs, you have to tell them, hey, this statin drug has all of these side effects. Well, 
molecules that are foreign to our biology always have side effects. What we've forgotten about is that these plant molecules have side effects. We just don't have to get a package insert because they're in a broccoli sprout. Right. But, but it's doing the same things. And so research on sulforaphane just wants to focus on, hey, it's doing this good thing with glutathione. It doesn't focus on the fact that, that sulforaphane also moves around the human body as a pro-oxidant, has other hormonal disrupting effects, and then can inhibit the absorption of iodine at the level of the thyroid. So it's really problematic for our thyroids. If you've seen the people in like rural Africa with like huge necks, that's a goiter. And that's a, that goiter is related to overconsumption of goitrogenic foods isothiocyanate-containing foods like cassava or brassica vegetables in the setting of a low iodine diet. So there's a real problem here, you know? So forethane is not doing good things for humans. We're left with, hey, it has bad side effects. It has a package insert. And then we can say, oh, well, it has a benefit. And so you can weigh them. And in my opinion, it's very clear there is no benefit to sulforaphane if if the actual benefit that you're trying to prove is redundant. And if you can get all those benefits, if you can get adequate glutathione, which you clearly can by just living well, right? Doing good things, being in the sun, exercising, fasting, cold, heat, sauna, then you don't need sulforaphane for optimal antioxidant status. And I've shown this with my labs. I've seen it over and over in my clients. Like You can look at markers of lipid peroxidation. You can look at markers of oxidative stress. And this has been shown repeatedly in the controlled studies with lots of vegetables versus no vegetables in the human diet. And what you see is there's no difference. So the people who eat vegetables don't have lower levels of lipid peroxidation. They don't have lower levels of DNA damage, 8-hydroxy, 2-deoxy, guanosine, that kind of stuff. They don't have lower levels of malondialdehyde or lower levels of inflammation. They don't have any of those things. It's like, basically, vegetables don't have any of the benefits that humans are told they do. Like we just, it's not very clear. There's tons of studies that show they don't have these benefits. There are lots of studies that go head to head. They have people who go no vegetables and people that go lots of vegetables and they'll follow them for four, eight, 10 or 12 weeks. And at the end of those studies, there's a lot of them that show no difference between those two in terms of inflammation, oxidative stress, DNA damage markers. So you're going, where are these magical benefits of vegetables? And they're not looking at all the other ways the vegetables or the molecules within them could be messing up our biology. So the thesis that I'm advancing in the book is, hey, you don't need plants. There are no magical plant molecules. There's no such thing. There's only molecules that your body needs to detoxify. And it's not a question of if plants are toxic. It's a question of how toxic and how well, so you, how well you or I are going to be able to detoxify them. Right. And so, you know, our ancestors certainly ate them, but they ate them begrudgingly. I think they were survival foods and they fermented them. And so interestingly, what happens if you take cabbage, a brassica vegetable, and you ferment it? It degrades the glucosinolates. So one way to detoxify cabbage is to ferment it. So if you absolutely must eat kale or cabbage, you better ferment it. Interesting. I I still don't think it's really that great for humans, but it's going to be less harmful. And that's what our ancestors have figured out. They've done that with beans and cabbage and other things. They ferment the plant foods and they become a little more edible if they need them during times of starvation. But I think that the hierarchy of foods is clear here. Animal foods, meat and organs, clearly superior in terms of nutrient density, nutrient bioavailability, nutrient compatibility. And they would have been sought out first. Plants are just like, hey, if we're starving, we're going to eat what we can. Let's detoxify them as much as possible. But once we can get an animal again, that's really what we want to do. And you know, if you're going to see some fruit every once in a while, that's great. Probably not as toxic for you. It's probably pretty darn benign. But kale is not a benign thing. And sulforaphane is not good for humans. 
What, what do you say to the person that says, well, what about fiber? I need fiber to, to be able to make my bowels go. And yeah. that was actually one thing that our resetters said when on the carnivore. They're like, oh, I've tried carnivore. It makes me constipated. Mm-hmm. So how do you explain those two things? Yeah, yeah. So there's a lot of evidence. There's a whole chapter on fiber in the book about this. So we can go into all of the claims about fiber. I think a lot of people, when they do a carnivore diet, they may not have read my work and they just eat a lot of steak, right? And they don't get enough fat. So if you're going to do a carnivore diet with only fat and protein and no carbohydrates, a lot of people just eat lean meat because we've been told that animal fat is bad for us. And exclusively eating lean meat is a great way to get constipated. So if you don't eat enough fat with your meat, you're going to get constipated. That's just how it goes. So it's not that a carnivore diet made you constipated. It's just that you're eating in a way that's not ancestrally consistent. Our Mm. ancestors certainly would have sought out fattier animals. So too much protein can certainly cause constipation, but I poop every day and it's beautiful. So (laughs) my N of of one plus everybody I work with, plus thousands of people in the carnivore community will say, you don't need fiber to poop. If you look at the medical literature, it's really clear that fiber doesn't improve constipation. It may give you bigger poops, but they're not easier to pass. They're not less painful. There's not less bleeding. And there's not less use of laxatives. There's a study that's really famous now in the book that I talk about in which there were 60 people. They all had constipation. They split up into three groups, 20-20-20, one group fiber as normal, one group moderately reduced fiber one group, zero fiber. And the zero fiber group did the best and they completely, 100% of people in that group resolved their constipation. There's all kinds of studies like this and all kinds of anecdotes. So if people believe they need fiber to poop, it's not supported by the medical literature and tons of experiences of people on this diet and in these studies. So it's a nuanced thing, but fiber doesn't make humans poop. I, I can guarantee you that. It's very clear that that's not the case. And then People, you know, they'll notice they're pooping less because you have less insoluble fiber, but that's okay. You still poop every day. It should be fine. Then there's all this stuff about fiber in the microbiome, which we talked about a little bit already. Fiber and cancer. If you look, there's a series of three landmark studies from 99 and 2000, two of which are in the New England Journal of Medicine, showing that when you do four or eight-year trials, the inclusion of fiber as fruits and vegetables or a dietary supplement does nothing to change the recurrence of colonic precancerous adenomas. So there's no evidence that fiber prevents colon cancer. It's just clear. And conversely, there's absolutely no interventional evidence in humans that red meat causes colon cancer. We can get into that and how misleading all that stuff is too. But yeah, that, the, that myth is, I hope people are waking up to that one. I hope so too. But some yeah. of this stuff is hard to undo. It's like- It's very you know, hard to undo. Yeah. yeah. When it gets out in the mainstream media, you have to work twice as hard to undo the, yeah. the, the incorrect... What, yeah, what would idea. you say about like the people who, who are getting constipation? You think it's just that they're eat, not eating enough fat? That, that I think would it's, be... Yeah. I think it's not eating enough fat or some, they're eating way too much protein. And I suspect they're eating lean meat. Um, right. They're eating tons of protein and tons of lean meat. And that's, that's all they're eating. And they're just not getting enough fat. And what about the opposite? I've heard a lot of people say that carnivore gives them diarrhea. Right. So it's funny, right? Like, which one is it? (laughs) Um, So there's a unique thing that happens in the human gut. Fiber binds bile acids. So we have a gallbladder. After you exit the stomach, the gallbladder is full of bile, which is bile acids, you know, bilirubin and cholesterol. Those are the three main components. And bile acids serve this indispensable role of emulsifying fats in our diet. So that biliary or pancreatic lipases can act on them and you can digest the fat. So you need bile acids to emulsify fat. But in our circulation, at least in terms of our enterohepatic circulation, a lot of the bile acids we normally eat 
move out when we poop because fiber will bind up bile acids. So there's only a certain amount of bile acids that the large intestine, the colon, is used to seeing. And when people stop fiber abruptly, the small intestine is going to deliver a lot more bile acids to the colon through the ileocecal valve than the colon is used to seeing. Mm. Eventually, for most of us, the small intestine upregulates the absorption of bile acids and it's fine. But for a lot of people, it causes a problem because they're getting excess bile acids moving through the ileocecal valve into the colon, and that is causing diarrhea. In that case, I recommend adding back a little bit of fiber, like avocado, olive, squash, and kind of tapering back down. Because a lot of people go from like a lot of fiber or a moderate amount of fiber to zero overnight, and they end up with a problem. And so that's it's just excess bile acids. Give the small intestine a little bit of time to adjust. I had diarrhea the first couple of weeks I was on a carnivore diet, and then it went away. And then it gets used to it. Yeah, interesting. What do you think of the carnivore diet as like an elimination diet? So the one piece that surprised me from my stool test is after a week of only doing meat, anti-zonulin and anti-gliadin markers showed up. Okay, I, yeah, ha- yeah. I haven't had wheat in a really long time and all I did is eat meat that week. And so I was curious if there was some shift that happened inside the gut that meant that meant that there was maybe some undigested wheat on the sides of the walls of my gut that were coming out. I just, I just some like how could those markers show up? Did you a GI map? I did vibrant wellness gut zoomer. Okay, so you know it's funny. I've done a lot of GI maps on people, and I've had the same experience myself. The anti-gliadin shows up all the time, and it's like. They're like, well, is it cross-reacting with candida? Like, I just think the problem with these gut tests is they're just, we're in the infancy here. We're in kindergarten in right. terms of gut yeah, testing. Yeah, it's so true. Yeah, I mean, anti-gliadin is just, I think it cross-reacts with a lot of different things. And anti-zonulin could as well. The problem, I mean, my goodness, stool zonulin is just not super accurate either. It's better than serum zonulin because the liver makes zonulin and we can't tell anything there. But the zonulin in the stool and the gliadin in the stool is just like, ah, we don't really know. So again, I, my first thought about those is I've seen it a lot. I see it all the time. They're not even above the reference range on the GI map. They're, they're, they're definitely there. They're in the hundreds. Yeah. And I'm like, are you eating wheat? And they're like, no, I, don't, I haven't eaten wheat in six months. And it's like, okay, this is weird. And I've done, you know, I've done GI maps on myself, you know, a year into a carnivore diet and had some anti-gliadin antibodies. And there must be some crass reaction there. So you think like, okay, this isn't really that valuable a test. Yeah. Like, unless it's, it's like a super, moving target. Yeah. Unless it's super sky high. And the zonulin is kind of the same thing. I mean, I see people with, you know, calprotectin. I mean, I think calprotectin is a pretty reasonable. Did you get a calprotectin? Yeah. yeah. Actually, it was high before. Calprotectin was really high before I did carnivore and it came down. So that's good. Significantly. Yeah. Calprotectin is a marker that I trust a little bit more in connection with clinical symptoms. And that's really, I think, the biggest thing for most people is, hey, do you get gas? Do you get bloating? Do you get pain? Are the bowel movements formed? Are you pooping every day? Great. Like we don't even need to go any further than that. It is interesting to look at that stuff, but I think we can get lost in the weeds. I though I do tell you that when I see calprotectin in the thousands or hundreds, like you know, up or close to a thousand, I'm like, there's some legit inflammation in your gut. That's like the one marker that I think is a little bit more you can stand on it a little better than like zonulin or anticlinin. Yeah. It's just those are weird markers. Well, that one came down with carnivores. So, yeah, that's great. Yeah. So there you go. So that's good. And that's been shown. You know, there's an interesting study. I could pull it up where they compared animal protein versus plant protein. And neither of them was terribly inflammatory, but I think it wasn't quite statistically significant, but there was a real trend toward calprotectin being lower on an animal-based diet. Yeah, so interesting. Yeah. What, what do you think? The other thing that came up for our resetters was 
well, if I can't afford to do the grass-fed, I can't afford to do the organic, what if I'm just doing the commercial meat? Now, the way I had always learned, you know, and I know like Rob Wolf, he's got his new book out that he's like explaining that that isn't so important to separate these two out. But if I just went carnivore on a commercial diet, would I, that cow and animal has been fed antibiotics and hormones and is that going to be a problem for me? You know, it's going to be individual. I think it's very clear that that's not ideal. And and we know what the ideal is. The ideal is grass-fed, grass-finished, regeneratively raised. Both Rob and I are huge fans of regenerative agriculture. There's lots of farms, White Oak in Georgia, Belcampo in California, amazing farms that are doing regenerative agriculture. I, I actually, you know, it's funny. I maybe I can come on your forum sometime and and have, or these people can email me and we can kind of troubleshoot with them. People can always email me, Dr. Paul, Dr. Paul at heartandsoilsupplements.com if they have questions. But I guess because I just want to have a conversation with someone and be like, "What's your budget?" I would love to work through this with mm. someone, like, and just be like, "Is there a way we could do this with actual grass fed, grass finished meat?" Because I think there is. My suspicion is there's a way to do it. And I think that a lot of people go to the store and they're like, I'm going to buy a New York steak and a ribeye. And you're like, oh, no, 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 don't do that. Like, why don't you get chuck roast or ground beef? If you don't want to get ground beef, you can get chuck roast for the same price. 99% of what I eat is stew meat. And you can get grass-fed, grass-finished mm. stew meat from White Oak or Belcampo, some of the best farms in the country for $10 a pound or less right now. So... a pound might be too much for people, but that's less than salmon. That's less... Like most chicken, most organic chicken is $9 or $10 a pound. So, And you can get even lower if you do ground beef or you get a sale. Like for instance, I think a lot of times when like Belcampo will do sales and you can get grass-fed, grass-finished stew meat for $8 a pound. You think, okay, I just want to ask people respectfully, like is $8 a pound sustainable? No, okay. Is it $6? Do we need to do ground beef? Is that so? I just want to understand like where it is for you and see where if we the can block do it. is. Yeah. yeah, if we absolutely couldn't, then I would try and work around it. But I would love to kind of like do the calculus and math with people and be like, how could we do this? Like, yeah. what is the most bang for your buck? I'll tell you that if you go to a butcher, you can get grass fed, grass finished liver for six dollars a pound. It's very cheap, and people yeah, only I've need to that. eat a few ounces a day. Or you can do the desiccated organ supplements. Butchers will give you suet, but I think most people are thinking about the meat and you know how much meat am I eating now. Right. When you include, I think when you're making bone broths and things like this, you don't, I think the other thing is people need to, they're imagining they have to eat like five pounds of meat a day, which is not true either. So, you know, I'm 170 pounds. I eat less than two pounds of meat a day because I'm getting some fat and some carbohydrates. And so I think that you could, I think we could balance it. My, my feeling is that you could construct a, a pretty darn good carnivore diet with grass-fed, grass-finished meat for about $15 a day. And if it, and I just want to know, you know, if fifteen dollars a day is too expensive, then I need to go back to the drawing board and be like, okay, how do we do it? So let's assume fifteen dollars is is not going to work for some amount of people. How would you get it even cheaper? In that case, yeah, I think that you're better off trying to do the the best meat you can get, but it doesn't have to be grass fed, grass finished. Even if you're eating liver, it's not grass fed. It's like I still think you're going to see benefits, but I think that I would strive to get to that other level and understand like what's the cutoff? Like is it ten? How could we get it there? Yeah. Could you go on a cow with your neighbors? You know, how do you do creative. this? Yeah. yeah. And, and then fasting, I also... this is where fasting could help. You just <laughs> fasting shorten your eating, <laughs> fast all day, eat one meal. And... Very cheap, very affordable. Yeah. yeah. And then I'm always curious, you know, in the most respectful way, I always want to ask people like, and this isn't really, they're not obliged to tell me this, but like, where's the rest of your money being spent? You know, like, like, and, and I, you know, I just want to ask people with like a real 
as much empathy as I can, like, what are your priorities? You know, how much do you spend on cable? How much do you spend on your cell phone? Like, is there anywhere we could switch these around? Because I don't know, maybe there's not. Right. I just think for myself personally, like my health comes before everything. And I've oh, always, agreed. I've always thought like, if I ever, um, because I've, there were a lot of years, you know, between college and, and going back to PA school when I was in cardiology before I went to medical school and residency that I thought, you know, if I, if I, I was just living hand to mouth, I was living paycheck to paycheck and I still bought really good food. I still bought yeah. mostly organic food. And I thought, well, if I ever got, if I ever got really thin and, and of course I didn't have a family, so it's different. You know, I would be like, I just wouldn't have a car. I would just ride my bike places and use that money for food. So it's, I think it's just how people understand like what's your priority and where can we cut from other ways. And I hope, but that would be an interesting thing for you to survey your group. Maybe you can come back with that information. Like what is this, like how much could you spend on food per day? What is reasonable? I, yeah, I, yeah, the daily amount. I can do that. I'll come back yeah. to you with it. And then our, we could try and construct. Like yeah. well, if you had $15 a day to spend on food, like you could eat, you could eat a pound and a half of grass-fed ground beef. That would be like $9. You could have a little bit of liver. You could have some suet. You could have some cucumber. And you could have an, uh, some avocado. I think most people could do it. Yeah. Yeah. That would be interesting. Oh, well, I'll find out. I've got yeah. a very exuberant crew. So yeah, yeah. let's finish up on this. Talk to me about organ meats. Give me, a, give me the rally cry for organ meats. Why should everybody be thinking about eating more organs? So the question I always ask is, where do you get your riboflavin? Do you know? I, I mean, I don't, yeah, I, I can't say that I've ever thought about, <laughs> did I get enough riboflavin? But riboflavin is really important. So riboflavin is vitamin B2. And if you look at the research, everybody, a lot of people, not everybody have heard of MTHFR, right? Methylene tetrahydrofolate yep. reductase. Well, people think like, oh, if I have this MTHFR SNP, which I do, I'm Italian, I'm 677 C to T, I'm, gonna, I'm not going to be able to move homocysteine into methionine. I'm going to accumulate it. I need methylfolate. You don't need methylfolate. You just need extra riboflavin. You need two to three milligrams of riboflavin. And so if you want your methylation to work, you need two to three milligrams of riboflavin per day. You cannot get that without eating heart and liver in your diet. It's just, it just works like evolutionarily. That's just one nutrient. The next ask question I ask is, where do you get your vitamin K2? You know, where do you get your choline? Where do you get your biotin? Where do you get your taurine? Where do you get your coenzyme Q10? And some of these are available in muscle meat, but a lot of them are much richer in organ meat, especially riboflavin, CoQ10, biotin, folate, you need these foods to complete the nutritional picture. It's just, it's how our ancestors always would have eaten. And so eating nose to tail is both ethically the right thing to do because yes. you're, you're honoring a whole animal. Agreed. You know, even though if any of your listeners are hunters, you know, they, they might leave the organs in the woods and of course the animals are going to eat them, but we humans should be eating them. And you know, yeah. they're, like I said, they're, they're not familiar to us. So if they're not familiar, there's ways to eat them. You can make pate or you can, you know, do things like this. But that's why we also did the desiccated organ supplements is I just really want people to get organs however they can. Yep. I would prefer they get the fresh organs, but if they can't get the fresh organs, I wanted to make the best desiccated organ supplements from grass-fed, grass-finished cows. And so the pitch for organs is, hey, you need these nutrients. Your kids, your family, your mom, your dad, your grandma, they need the nutrients in these foods. They are unique nutrients. Like there is no better multivitamin, in my opinion, than like a beef organs like we make, or we make a bone marrow and liver and a beef organs. And like you said, there's a fire starter, which is suet, stearic acid coming soon, all kinds of cool stuff in the works. And it's just like, hey, your ancestors always use this for unique nutrition. It's sacred to the new era. This tribe in Africa, they can't even touch the liver with human hands. It's what they've given people for fertility. And if we're not getting it, we're just missing out on the superfood. Like forget kale. 
liver and, and kidney. These are the real superfoods. And I, I just know that a lot of people, my sister, my parents were like, I will never eat that. It's like, okay, well, let me just make the best thing I could and freeze dried for you. So however you guys want to get it, that's great. If you want to do the desiccated stuff, check out our stuff at heartandsoilsupplements.com. And you'll have to let me know what you think. I know you got some. Yeah, I ordered some because I I love to test like one thing at a time. Mm-hmm. So I'm just going to put that into my as like my new thing once it comes and try it for a couple of weeks and see if I notice notice a difference. I definitely on the carnivore diet felt amazing, mental clarity, energy. I mean, I always feel pretty good, but there was just something that little extra something. So I'm kind of curious to try the the organ supplements and then mix that with. I think I'm going to go after the tier one for a little yeah. while. And then see how if that takes my health to another level. I think you're going to feel amazing, especially with the organs. It's just, I mean, my, you know, one of the guys that works with me here, his mom is taking the beef organs, and she was like, "I just feel, I just feel better. I feel good. What did I do?" And he's like, "Mom, of course, you just started eating like these organs. You've never had this: kidney, heart, spleen, pancreas, liver. Like, you know, that's just amazing nutrition yeah. that we never get as humans. Like, we're just missing it. And it makes me so happy." When my sister sends me pictures or videos of my niece and nephew, she'll just, like I said, she just opens them up into avocado or ground beef and they're like eating them up. And I'm like, ah, oh. just makes me feel happy that like my niece is getting K2 and choline for her growing brain and, and biotin and her, she's getting riboflavin. And man, I wish I had this. Right. So kids can do it. Kids can eat it. Yeah. yeah so interesting. Kids, yeah. Well, I'm again, I'm so happy you made a good product because I've been trying to hunt down. Um, I interviewed Allie Miller. She wrote the anti-anxiety diet and she's huge on organ meats. Yeah. So she gave me the recommendation of take meat and do two thirds of it as like ground meat and then a third of it as organ meat. Yeah. Well, it turns out there's a lot of places that do that for you. Right, right. And they're all sold out. So <sighs> I'm like, oh man, now I'm going to have to do my own. So I then I came across your heart and soil products and I'm like, okay, I'm, let me give this a, a go. And we'll put a link in the notes here. Perfect. So, yeah. So, but let's, let's, my last thing that I want to finish up on is I have five questions for you. And I actually have six. I have added another one in talking to you. So, so, let me start with the, the new one that gets, got added. What does your profession think of you? How does, what is, have you been ostracized by other doctors? Oh, great question. You know, I think that you probably appreciate this. Anyone that thinks for themselves and steps outside of the box is going to get haters. I love talking to doctors because give me 20 minutes in a room with a room full of physicians and I will, in the most humble way, I'm confident that I will show them things they've never thought about. And so I think that a lot of I think that there's a lot of physicians who are super excited about what I'm doing. There's a lot of physicians who don't even know about it. I think the problem is not what they think about me. I think the problem is just that many physicians don't think outside of the box to even imagine that foods are such a powerful lever in health and disease. So I love it when physicians don't agree with what I'm doing. If they just give me the opportunity to talk to them, I... As you said, my book has like over 600 references and I'm happy. Impressive. I love, I love yeah. talking to people about science and sharing ideas. So uh, I think that in general, people are coming around. There's more and more physicians who are animal-based and interested in this. But if you, look at, if you look at Western medicine in general, it's going very plant-based, which worries me. And that's why I do what I do. Because I fear that the, the incorrect vilification of animal foods will harm us and our children and our parents and our families. And that's what I'm against. I'm really strongly against that. We need Oregon. We need animal foods. There's a valuable for us. We can't. Yeah, I would say as a whole, our healthcare system is really outdated. They don't, I mean, and if there's anything the pandemic is showing us, it's showing us how many sick people we had that we called healthy. 
And like that has been the biggest like aha moment that I've seen in the last four months. I couldn't agree with you more. It's just the pandemic of metabolic illness. Yes. We're just horrible at at saying, hey, you're really metabolically unwell. I mean, it's tragic that people are dying of coronavirus. And a bigger tragedy is that more people will continue to die because there is no change in the way that we are a way that we are creating and sort of modeling health for people. There's nothing that says, hey, health is a low visceral adipose issue. Health is a low fasting insulin. Health is this. Health is, you know, we're just saying health is not being obese. And it's like, well, too bad because 70% of the population is obese and overweight. So we're doing something wrong, but we need more, we need better metrics to motivate people. And And we're also not giving people any tools that work to lower weight. Because if you look at what people are doing, in general, you know, Americans especially are listening to the guidelines. We are eating more healthy foods. We are eating more vegetable oil because we're told to eat vegetable oil and we're eating, you know, less red meat. They're doing these things and diabetes rates are skyrocketing. So it's not that people won't listen to the information. It's that they're not being given the right information. So it's both the tragedy of how we characterize health and a tragedy of the information that we're giving people to achieve health. There's just nothing. We're not giving people any information to get there. We're saying, do these things. People are like, I'm doing them and now I'm diabetic. Well, here's your insulin. Right. And it's genetic. It's yeah, your, exactly. It's your, yeah. it's your genes. You have bad genes. Sorry. I don't, yeah. I hate that. It makes yeah. me crazy. Well, this is what, again, I love about fasting is because one of the barriers that we hear is, well, I can't afford to eat healthy. And so I'm like, yeah, but you can, everybody can afford to fast. So, and everybody has time to fast. Then now I like this idea of trying to create some calculations around how you could go carnivore and keep it under a certain price because now you really could start to heal people with those two principles. Yeah, so, what, what can, if you can't afford to eat healthy, what can you afford? And then yeah. let's figure out how to do it. And go from there, yeah. Yeah. Okay, my next question to you is if you could only eat one meat, one cut of a meat, like you could <laughs> only have one, What's your, what's your favorite one? What would well, you have? I mean, I, I, ribeye is amazing. Like I said, I don't eat a lot of ribeye because I just, from a, a cost perspective, I prefer the more affordable meats. Ribeye is, I think if I could only eat one cut of meat, it would just be ribeye. Yeah, it's, it's delicious. Yeah, good it's choice. got fat on it too, yeah. Yeah, I would agree. My, we just got a green egg. Have you ever tried the green egg? For- I haven't, you know, I haven't, but I've heard they're cool. Oh my gosh, it'll take your meat to a whole new level. Oh, and my amazing. husband's like, look at the fat. It's like coming out of the ribeye. <laughs> like he's, we got a lot of meat eaters in the house. So it's amazing. Yeah. So, okay. What do you think? What, what's the one food on the flip side of that, that you really miss now that you've gone carnivore? You know, it's funny. I must be an alien. I don't miss anything. And I, I promise that's the truth. Like, I think that these are the things that make us who we are. And maybe the reason that it was me who wrote this book was that I, I have a little bit of, you know, OCPD or whatever that just makes me think like, I don't miss a single thing, to tell you the truth. Like there's nothing that I, I just don't think about it that way. I've just created this paradigm in my mind. Like I am, for me, it's more valuable to promote health. And yeah. I, I, I mean, and it's not like I'm defrauding myself. I get to eat red meat and eggs and, and fat and, and honey and bone broth and organs. I think these are some of the most delicious foods out there and I feel great. So I don't feel deprived at all. There's nothing that I that I feel like I'm missing. I would be I would be willing to place a large bet that I will never eat a cookie the rest of my life and I will never feel bad about that because it's just not something that gives me any value. There's no value proposition there for me. It's not about that. I don't use food as entertainment. I just want nutrients and and it tastes delicious. So yeah. that's not to say it's that the, I I think it's bad for anyone to eat a cookie. It's just everyone has to decide what their highest quality of life is. I love the quote Tony Robbins said that nothing tastes as good as healthy feels. Right. 
That's exactly. exactly. I will do anything to to have that insane healthy feeling because yeah. there's no better joy in life than that. I agree. So. That's how that's that's the way that we experience life. Yeah, exactly. Okay. Next question. You're sitting at dinner with a vegetarian and they're next to you and they are like, eating meat is the most unethical thing that I have ever seen. How can you convince me that I should eat meat when killing animals is so, so wrong? Right, right. So I would take them on a hike with me into the wilderness. (laughs) And I would say, and I would say, do you think that your ancestors were unethical? The reason you are on this planet is because your ancestors respectfully hunted meat and fed it to their children and their children and their children, right? There are no vegetarians in any indigenous culture anywhere. So you exist because your ancestors ate meat. In order for something to live, something else must die. This is the way it is. That doesn't, we fear death. And death is beautiful and we are all going to die. Like one day I will become food for earthworms. And nobody wants to think about this. It's very, you know, it's very morbid, but I think it's very clarifying for all of us. I will happily accept that one day I will go back to the earth in some way. And that it's not, is a lion unethical for eating an antelope on the plains? Mm. Like it's, it's what it does. It's how it nourishes itself and its family. And we are all in a circle of life and it is beautiful. And it's not unethical. What it is, is a call to all of us to have gratitude and responsibility for the bounty that we get in whatever food we're eating. And I think that that's what our ancestors have always done. And going to a grocery store separates us from that. When we are not hunting our food, we don't understand the incredible gift that this food is to us every day. I've hunted with a bow a couple of times and you know, killing a deer with a bow is a moving experience because you think, I better live a good life. I better be a good human. Every time I hunt an animal, I come out a better human because mm-hmm. I'm reminded of this cycle of life and death. And that's what vegetarians are missing. They're just thinking, this is unethical. Well, I mean, first of all, what makes you think an animal is any different than a plant? You're telling me a plant doesn't have consciousness? Like, well, that's a very, that's, that's your paradigm, but you can't prove that, you know? And there, there are a lot of people who believe plants have consciousness and plants are respiring too. So plants are alive as well. You have to be grateful for anything you are eating. And they well, you're causing suffering, you're causing pain. Well, you know, I saw some article recently, I should find it, that apparently when you cut the grass, the smell that's released is like a, is like a grass distress signal, you know? Oh my God. Yeah, so like, you're just, you're just chopping the heads off, you know, tons of, you know? And then <laughs> Baby think, grass. Yeah. <laughs> grass threads. Baby grass. Think, you think about the number of grass blades that you're destroying, you know? Yep. And then if you actually think about the total, if you want to get down to suffering, what is the cumulative suffering of harvesting a field that's monocropped? What's on the vegetarian's plate? Where was it growing? It wasn't grown in the wild. You had to cut down trees. You had to blaze. You had to burn. You had to till the soil. You had to kill earthworms and mice and voles and beavers and ducks and swans and eagles that prey there. You disrupted thousands, hundreds of thousands of lives. It's called bykills. In order to take a piece of land that's wild and turn it into a monocrop field, you are causing exponentially more suffering in life forms than I am eating a cow grown on grass for its whole life, right? So there's just like, it's just such an absurd perspective. Like, Like you show me where the food you came from is eating, where your eating came from, and I'll show you where my food came from. And you tell me what the more cumulative suffering is and, and what we should be sort of grateful for. And it's just, it's crazy to think about that, how massively you're disrupting an ecosystem with a monocropped plant. And then if you go to like White Oak of El Campo, you'll see happy cows on a field of grass doing what their ancestors have done for millions of years, which is eating eating grass on a plane. Like there's, it's still an ecosystem and you'll see eagles and bunnies and, and earthworms. And, you know, there's, it's an ecosystem. It's actually like pretty much the way it's supposed to be. It's crazy. 
uh, such a good perspective. Such yeah. a good perspective. Okay, my last question. If you have one message for the world that you could get implanted in everybody's brain, <laughs> what would that message be? I think it's that I'll say is that don't fear, you know, I, so I have this, this kind of glib saying that I've developed on Twitter. It's eat like your ancestors, not like your doctor. So, you know, and and of course there are a lot of doctors out there, you know, that, that are pretty hip, but don't eat like your, your mainstream doctor, eat like your ancestors. So it's not, it's not complicated. It's just, just do what your genetics are expecting. Do what your ancestors have done for 3 million years. And I believe strongly that is to eat meat and organs and we should not fear these foods. They are so widely vilified, yet they are the things that bring us health and vitality. And that will, I think that alone will change the way that we get to live, the quality with which we get of our lives. Yeah. And I mean, if you just stop and look at how sick everybody is, I feel like if you just keep doing what everybody else has been doing, you're going you're gonna to get as sick as they are. But right. this is why I love paradigm shifting is when we step into a new paradigm, there's an opportunity for a whole nother level of health that we, if we're open to it, could totally change our lives. And that, I mean, what do we got? We've got 90 years on this planet, if we're lucky, out of 50 billion. You know, it's a blink of an eye. You want it to be... I'm just all about sharing tools with people that might help them live a little more, you know, richly. Yeah. More of their kids' soccer games, more joy with their partners and, you know, just longer longer experience and more mental clarity, you know, just better lives. That's what it's about. Just this rich life. We're all just here to enjoy it. Yeah. Like that's what... It's, I mean, but so many people are just suffering with all these things that limit their ability to enjoy life. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, this has been amazing and you've answered so many of my questions. So I'm now going to take everything you just taught me and take it back to my resetter group. We will come back with prices and we will pick I'm your super brain. super excited. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Thanks so much for having me on. Absolutely. Yeah. It's really fun because we can try all these theories out with so many people and then just sit back and watch it. So we'll keep yeah. you posted. So, Thank you. Please do. Yeah. And people find your products at Heart and Soil. Is that right? Heartandsoilsupplements.com. Okay, great. And you, and can we'll... just, you can email me directly, Dr. Paul, drpaul at heartandsoilsupplements.com if you have questions. That's the easiest okay. way. Great. Well, thank you for your time. You were so generous with all. I mean, we were here we are an hour and a half in. So I love talking about it. I just get going. I know. I love that. And that's what we like people that are on fire about things. So thank you. Thanks for having Again, me on. It's great to be here. It. Thank yeah, you. Thank you. Hello, resetters. Let's talk organ meat gives me the shivers just thinking about eating it, but we know how important it is. And today's episode is sponsored by Heart and Soil's Amazing Organ Supplements, which is Dr. Paul's company. So a little bit about Heart and Soil. They believe that the time has come to reclaim our ancestral birthright of optimal health by gathering the nutrition we need by once again eating animals nose to tail, just like our ancestors have always done. Their products are trusted by many of the health leaders that we often sometimes mention here on this podcast, Dr. Joe Mercola, Mark Sisson, Rob Wolf, Dave Asprey, and more. Their supplements are 100% animal-based and contain zero plant-based products or fillers. They are sourced from the finest animals on the planet, raised on regenerative farms in the pristine lands of New Zealand, and soon to come from regenerative farms right here in the U.S. They have a lot of information, too, on what they're doing to do regenerative farming here in the U.S. So if you want more information on that, you can go to their website. It's pretty awesome. 
And their mission with their products is to help people obtain optimal health consuming organ meats in addition to muscle meat provides a complete component of nutrients and honors the animals we are blessed to be nourished by. And I mean, we've talked about organ meats before on the podcast. Uh, If you haven't listened to the anti-anxiety diet with Allie Miller, she talked a lot about how important organ meat is for anti-anxiety purposes. Maria Emmerich, who we talked about carnivore with, also mentioned the importance of organ meat. And so it's super great. But if you can't stomach the taste of organ meat, and but you know how important it is and you know you need to add it to your diet, then these supplements are great because you'll get all the added benefits. Dr. Minnie and I have talked a couple times about getting some liver and grounding it in with our ground beef. We have yet to do that. But Dr. Mindy is now two weeks into their beef organ supplement and is noticing a really big difference in her mental thinking and brain health. I know that their most popular one is the bone marrow and liver supplement. It was sold out when Dr. Mindy went to buy her. So if you had to start with one, that would be the one that you would start with, the bone marrow and the liver. And today they are offering our listeners 10% off with promo code PELS10, that's P-E-L-Z-10, at heartandsoilsupplements.com. I will link the web address here in the show notes as well. And I will also link where they're doing more work on regenerative farming. You've heard us talk before, you know, about Zach Bush and his work. Regenerative farming is super important and they've got a lot of great information. So I highly recommend checking that out. But it's just at the end at the end of this, it's super important to get back to what our ancestors did. Our ancestors did not eat processed carbs, sugars, vegetable oils, canola oils, and so much of the stuff that is on our grocery shelves today, which is leading to massive inflammation and playing a huge underlying role in the rampant epidemics of chronic disease that we now face today as a greater human tribe. So try them out. Code Pels for 10% off. Let us know what you think and enjoy. Okay, resetters. So Jessica and I are here with the summary of our thoughts of that interview. Oh, mind blowing. It was so good. (laughs) What was your favorite part? There's too many. He had the end was probably my favorite. I just feel like he went on like mic drop after mic drop about people's limiting beliefs. And, and I loved what he said about, you know, if he was sitting next to a vegetarian. Oh, oh that was the so, best. That was, was so the good. best. That it was, was so the best good. explanation I've ever heard. And this is, is really, you know, with heart to vegetarians. Absolutely. Yes. This is not a beat the vegetarian up, but we do need to look at that there. I mean, I love what he said. You are here because your ancestors hate meat, ate meat. Yeah. Who wouldn't be alive today if your ancestors didn't eat meat? That was crazy. And then I love what he said, like, we don't villainize the lion who's going after meat. It's just what he does. So I do think that there's a lot of dogma in nutrition that we've lost sight of what's right for our body. We're we're using our, our educated brain to say, well, that would make the most sense. And then we're using our taste buds, but we're not going back into history and saying, okay, what did our how did our ancestors do this? Because that's right. how we're meant to do it. Well, and then I think too, like for so many people, you know, they're eating things that are, I mean, if if we get away from just the plants and and the beef, you're eating chemicals out of a box and how is, or you're eating all this processed foods. How is that better than eating something that was, has been walking this earth for thousands of years? Yep. Yep. And I I love how he says, and give gratitude to the animal. Like, I love that. I think that's, 
that was incredible. What what did you think of his toxicity, his plant toxicity? That my my mind is also blown with the fact and it makes it makes sense that if the plant has a defense mechanism right that against predators that when we eat it it's the same it's going to have that same response inside of our bodies mind blowing and i'm going to i'm going to have a hard time like letting go of beans and turmeric and chocolate chocolate right i could have cried no, I, I I don't know if you noticed. I didn't ask him details about chocolate because I basically was I like, know, you I skipped over it. I don't want to hear that. I didn't ask him anything about red wine. I don't want to know. I'm just I'm gonna I'm you're already forcing me to give up like lettuce, and that is pretty bad. Right. So I know least... I I messaged you during. And I'm like, how the heck does does wine come into this? But honestly, I didn't really want to know the answer either. I was yeah. just like, oh no. I, I know, I know. I probably should have because dry farm wine might have been a little different. And but I could see where he was going. I mean, he he really he really knocks resveratrol and does not believe that those studies are all that they're meant to be. And on the on the topic of his studies, so if you guys are interested in this, get his book. It's got over six hundred different studies in it, and he brings up a couple interesting points. When you're looking at a study, it's very very easy to look at high level. But what he's done, which I can't, I mean, the guy, I don't know if he doesn't have a family, like how does he have all the time to do what he does? But he like breaks the study down and he goes, looks and looks deeper beneath just the big picture. And I think that's why he's been able to see a new perspective. Yeah. Well, and that's what I loved about bringing him to our platform is, you know, he, he takes the science, which is what we're always all about. He, he said, I think that it took him a year and a half to write that to book. To write the book. Yeah. I mean, it makes, makes sense, sense. With, with all that, re- with all those resources. Yeah, absolutely. So what are you going to do different? Now that you've heard what he he said. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, I think we're back to the organ meat, which we had this discussion after Maria's podcast, and I've yet to include organ meat (laughs) in my uh, daily We need to have an organ meat party. Yeah. The liver, though. Well, I'm going to get the supplements, so we should try the supplements. They're coming on their way. What do you think of what he said about organ meat improving methylation? That was interesting. I th- I immediately thought of our detox people. I'm that's like, ex- oh, what I thought, right? Yep. So we may need to do a one hundred and one for those of you in our toxin reset program on organ meat and methylation. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could go back and do a whole program on methylation because there's so many pieces to it. But I hadn't really thought about organ meat, and I'll tell you, I'm super excited for my supplements to come because I want to see what it does. Yeah, and I really like his tier one carnivore. I feel like I could do that: meats, avocados, uh, squashes olives. Like, I feel like I could live off that most of the time. I did appreciate that he said, if you're going to do cabbage, ferment it. Cause I do love sauerkraut. Now I've trained my body to love it. I know. Or like the fermented salsa that we love. Oh, the fermented salsa. I don't want to give that up. I know. I know. I think I might try the tier one too. I'd be curious to know too, what happens with your hormones. I feel like we should do a trial run on that. I could do it. I could do ninety days. That's what Dr. Sonia had recommended. Is that I try it for ninety days. I, I the question I asked her was, how long do you think I would need to do it to see a change in my hormones? And mm-hmm. she said at least ninety days. Maybe so, we'll both do it because I'm mm. obviously not menopause, menopausal. Yeah, different but I'm time of life. Of what it would do to, I mean, I have a pretty stable cycle, but I'm curious on like the PMS symptoms and 
he, he talked I, about that one, his friend who didn't yeah. know that her cycle came, I would be that I would love that. Yeah. <laughs> I'm sure there are well, many other women that would it. love that. Yeah, let's I do think, it. Let's do it. Yes. I think we could do it. It wouldn't be far off from what we're doing. It just takes a few shifts in our, what we're yeah. eating. Agreed. So, and we're not traveling anywhere for the next like 10 years. <laughs> I'm just, like, <laughs> just joking. But at least for the next, because traveling is what might hook you up harder. Yeah. yeah. But I think with everything going on in the pandemic, we may be, we may be, be perfect timing. Yeah. For a little while. So, but resetters, you guys give us feedback. Let us know what you found. Jessica and I will definitely go do, take him up on his offer of like, how much can you spend each day? What organ meat would you buy? What type of meat would you buy? I think that's a really good question. We had already been working on something along that line. So stay tuned to our Instagram because all of that kind of stuff will come out on Instagram. Well, I had an experience last week talking to some school teachers on really low income and trying to give them some ideas around how we do health in with, with a very little budget. So I liked his thing of like, figure out what your day, how much you can spend in a day, and then let's put the meat around that. Yeah. So we, we will definitely work on that project. So, but give us feedback, guys. I hope you, I hope your mind is blown as much as ours. That was really incredible to do. Enjoy. out you put organic food in and you shake bad toxins out you eat keto biotic and your microbiome shouts that's what it's all about you put fast cycling in you take over eating out you put the good fats in trying seven fast types out you download carb manager where your food is all craft out that's what it's all about that's what resetting is all about.